Well, good morning. My name's Adam, and I am the, I am the student pastor here. These are my friends down here in front. I love getting the chance to come and preach. As I was studying this passage this week, there's a lot of great, rich truth and theology found in it. It's a really, really cool passage in how it relates to us. I'll tell you how we're going to break it up, and then we'll get into it. We're going to break it up into kind of two portions, Act 1, Act 2, and then we're going to basically pull from that and figure out how we can, how we can maybe live a little differently as a result. But first, have any of you guys seen that dude on Facebook that does those magic tricks in like a coffee shop where he's like, all right, first think of your birthday, month, and number. Have you guys seen this guy? His name's Rick Lax. But he does, uh, he does these magic tricks where he convinces you that he's doing this like reading your mind. And he's like, take your birth month, double it, add 10, divide by two, minus seven, your number's five. And you're like, yeah, dude, that was basic math. Everyone's number is five. I watched one the other day, and it was like, all right, look at this grocery list. And the item you pick, think of the color that it is, and I'm going to tell you the color. And you're like, whoa. And he goes, is your color orange? You're like, wow, 78 million shares, 39,000 something likes. You look back at the list, it's like, dude, everything was orange on the list. That wasn't that hard. That's not magic, okay, but for some reason, millions and millions and millions of people are Interested, and you read the comments, and you're like, are you, anyways. I love magic. I love watching shows. I love watching Chris Angel, the demon-possessed magician. I love watching David Blaine and all his crazy human things that he does. It's wild. But more more than watching the, the magic, I love watching the response of people. I love it when they're out in the street doing magic, and the response, you know, they... They scream, their jaw drops. My favorite response is when people just run away as fast as they can because they're like, yep, I'm out because it's just so mind-boggling and definitely you're possessed. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. All right, we're going to look at a story today of a guy who was considered a magician, not in the sense that we would think of it, but more of like a, a sorcerer, wizardry, witchcraft kind of stuff. And he, um, he holds this great power and is affected in a way by, by the message of the gospel and by the Holy Spirit, not in the way that we would hope, but uh, we'll talk about that. So we're going to talk about someone who got caught up in that, in the magic of things, and honestly, he looked at it more as what could he gain from it? How, how can I take this and use it to my advantage? We're going to start with some context to what's going on, all right? Let's read verses 1 through 3 in Acts 8, and we'll get to Simon here in a moment. So here's what it says in verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. That is Stephen, the first martyr of the church that we learned about last week. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Stephen is killed for his faith, and Saul... We'll get to him. Uh, when, they, when they told me a month ago that I was going to be preaching, I really hoped it fell on the story of Saul because that's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, just his conversion because of who he was and who he became. But I'm not that lucky, I guess. But Saul, we learn here right away that Saul was a 
persecutor in a great way of the church. He approved of the execution of Stephen. He, he went into house church after house church and he dragged people off to prison. A great persecution arose. So much so that the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. They were uprooted from their homes, from their lives, and they had to leave what they knew and go somewhere new and try to make a new life there. Forced exit. And here's what we don't want to miss right away is where were they scattered in the passage? What does it say? Judea and Samaria, yes. In Acts 1, 8 through 9, here's Jesus' last words before he was taken up into heaven. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so it begins. What was meant to be an end to the Jesus movement actually turned into the beginning stages of the church growing and expanding in a really, really cool way. Tertullian, who was an early theologian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And at least in the infancy of the church, that appeared to be true. People would die for their faith and others would latch on to that faith and would run with it and it would spread. So this is what's going on here. A great persecution and the believers are scattered. And as a result of this, now we come to act one of our story. And we're going to call act one the power of the name of Jesus. The power of the name of Jesus. Let's read verses four through eight together. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they had heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip, who we're talking about here, is not one of the apostles, but he's one of the seven deacons that was appointed at the time that Stephen was appointed as well. We talked about that a few weeks back, where they were responsible as deacons now to take care of serving, more specifically serving the widows. And so Philip was one of those people. So he goes down to Samaria and he begins to preach. And we gotta be reminded of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans because that makes this passage a little more significant when we can remember the conflict that was there. So the conflict between Jews and Samaritans went back to about the eighth century BC. And the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and their capital was Samaria. And when they conquered they took a majority of the Samaritans out of the city and they replaced them with foreigners. And then about 6th century BC, the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was, um, had Jerusalem as the capital. They took everybody out. They just took all the Jews and they took them to Babylon. But those Jews held on really, really tightly to their identity as Jews in Babylon. So they were allowed in the 5th century BC to come back and rebuild their city under Ezra and Nehemiah. You guys know that story. They, they come back and start to rebuild. And at this time, the people of the northern kingdom, Samaria, had started intermarrying with the foreigners that were brought in. So when the Jews moved back, they didn't like that too much because now this, the people of the northern kingdom were not pure Jews. Now they were a mixed breed, if you will. And so the northern kingdom people come down, they want to help rebuild, and the Jews say, uh-uh, we don't, we don't want you here, we don't want your help, You're, you have no part of this, you guys are no longer Jews, you've lost your right. 
And so as a result of that, there's this bitter hatred and conflict that lasts for a long, 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 long time. And you see that even in Jesus' time when he's you know, going through Samaria and he talks to the woman at the well and how his disciples responded to that and, and how against culture and religion that was. And so the fact that Philip is preaching there shows a really massive, important step in the early stages of the church because the message is, is Jesus is for the whole world, not just for the Jews. So Philip performs miracles, he exercises demons, he, they make their exits with loud shrieks, and the reason they do that is because they know the power that Philip is preaching in and by the name in, in which he preaches, which is Jesus. And so he does that, he heals paralytics, and he heals those who are crippled. And the, the result of that, Luke says, is that there was great joy in the Samaritan city. So people are taking notice of these wonders and these works, and then enter Simon into our story, who is our wizard. Verses 9 through 11. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, youngest to oldest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. There's a commentary by a guy named Simon Kistemaker. Here's what he says that sheds some light on what's going on here. So he says, in Jerusalem, Satan's opposition to the church came in the form of the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira, the imprisonment of the apostles, the death of Stephen, and the great persecution. In Samaria, it's a bit different. He uses Simon the sorcerer, who was, wasn't a magician like one who uses sleight of hand, but it was a magic art that could be seen as a serious threat to the Christian faith because it represents witchcraft and sorcery. Among the vices Paul lists as acts of the sinful nature is witchcraft in Galatians 5.20. Those who practice magic arts are excluded from the holy city and are cast into the fiery lake of burning sulfur in Revelation 21-22. And God tells his people not to become involved in any form of magic in Deuteronomy 18. So because of this and because of Simon's deception, it's bad, but the people thought that he was the power of God that is called great. He had deceived them in such a way that they literally thought he was a messenger of God because of the great things he was doing. There's some extra biblical commentary in historians that try to trace back some of the things that were said about him that he was doing. And a lot of it is kind of word of mouth, but we're talking kind of stuff like levitation, kind of evil demon activity. Those are some of the rumors about Simon. So it wasn't like he was taking some potion and he was like, watch this, it was like really crazy demonic stuff that was going on, and he convinced people that he was a messenger of God. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we have to understand right here the power in the name of Jesus. The people of Samaria thought that Simon was a representative of God. And in the moment when they saw the signs and then more importantly heard the name of Jesus being preached, there was a, an immediate change of allegiance from Simon and what he was preaching and the message of Jesus. Immediate change because of the powerful nature of it. And then Simon follows Philip around because he's his little super fan, and he just wants to be there and, and see everything that he does. 
power of the name of Jesus. A few weeks ago at Hunter's Memorial Service, I had the honor of standing up in front of about a thousand people and delivering the gospel. And my prayer all along was that one student would come to faith, just one. So I get a text later that night from a friend of one of our college students. And most of you don't know this, but this hopefully will encourage you. These were her words in her text. I wanted to let you know that my sister had a friend of hers attend the funeral that was Hindu. After the service, she said to my sister, whenever I go to the temple, I feel nothing. But when I hear the name of Jesus, I feel something. I think I want to be a Christian now. She proceeded to call her mom and tell her that she wanted to become a Christian, to which her mom said, okay, whatever you want to do. And she will be attending church this Sunday with my family, which was last Sunday. So the name of Jesus is powerful. It was then and it is now. And so men and women are coming to faith and they're being baptized and as act one comes to a close, there's this excitement in Samaria, so much so that the apostles that were left in Jerusalem wanted to come and see it for themselves. They're catching wind of, of what's going on. All these people who are coming to faith and being baptized, and they're excited, and there's joy, and they're like, man, we want to see what God is doing. And so we get into Act 2 in verse 14, and we're going to call this act the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have the power of the name of Jesus, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's read the rest of our passage and then talk about it. So verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Peter and John come to check things out. By the way, this is the same John that in Luke 9.54 wants to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans because of their rejection of Jesus. So now I think he's probably a little skeptical, and he's probably going, eh, I need to see it to believe it. Can't believe that God would want to save the Samaritans. So John and Peter come down, and we've got to stop and take pause here for a moment as well and talk about the Holy Spirit, which we need to do more often, in my opinion. There are some questions that might have come to mind when we read this. I know there were for me. One of the big questions that I'm faced with is, if we are, in fact, indwelt by the Spirit at the point of conversion, why did the apostles have to come down and lay their hands on them for them to receive the Spirit? It says they had not yet received the Spirit. They believed and were baptized. Why had they not yet received the Spirit? When we believe it to be true, Romans 8 9 says, you however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the moment you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. 
Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So at the point of conversion, we receive the Holy Spirit. So why does it say that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, even though they believed in Jesus and were baptized in his name? Many interpreters would say, and I, I love this interpretation of what was going on, they would say that even if the Samaritans were already true believers, as we believe they were, and the Holy Spirit was given in two stages, this wasn't meant to be a normal thing for Christians. It wasn't meant to be a normal occurrence. Instead, it was an exception so that the Jewish apostles could come down and could confirm that yes, in fact, the Samaritan church was a part of the body of Christ and there was unity between the Jewish church and the Samaritan church and they were one. There was oneness, there was unity. And so God used this confirmation for all of those doubters and all those haters that were like, not Samaria, no way. We hate them, right? Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm for all, including them. I, I love that idea that they came to confirm the unity of the body in spite of centuries-old conflict. Another question that it might pose is, were the Samaritans really converted? Were they converted before the apostles came down, or did they need to, to rain down the Holy Spirit on them so that they could be converted? I think evidence in, in the passage points to that they were. It says that they experienced much joy, and that joy that's used here is the same joy that the Ethiopian eunuch in the next passage experienced when he was converted, when he experienced Jesus. And so that same joy from his experience is the same joy they are experiencing. In verse 12, it says that they believed Philip, but what they believed is the good news about the kingdom of God and about the name of Jesus Christ. And we know that when we believe on the name of Jesus Christ, we might be saved. That's what it says in scripture. Verse 16 says that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when the apostles came down, they didn't baptize them again. I think if they were converted at that point, they would have maybe rebaptized them. I don't know. But all of this happens. Awesome, supernatural Holy Spirit stuff is happening. Simon sees it and he's like, okay, I want that. Like, I've had some, some pretty cool stuff that I've been able to do, but I want that power. I want to be able to lay my hands on somebody else and give them the power to speak in tongues. That would be awesome. Simon was used to paying money for, for magic formulas and concoctions and things to amaze people. He was used to that. In fact, the word that we have in the English language, simony, means the buying or selling of an ecclesiastical office or obtaining an ecclesiastical promotion by offering money. So we have a term for what he was doing based on his name. So he offers the apostles money so that he can have that power because he doesn't get it. He doesn't get where the power is really coming from. He looks at it as maybe it's another way of using this, this sorcery that he has to, to gain something, to influence people. Satan perverts the truth, right? He doesn't want us to see truth, Adam and Eve. He tells us certain things. He, he wants to pervert the truth, and Simon reveals in that moment that he values money and personal gain over God. If Simon had received the Holy Spirit, it says he believed also. I don't think he really did. I think he was believing in what he wanted to be true. But if he had, in fact, received the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have had to ask for it. He would have known that he had the Holy Spirit. So he wouldn't have had to offer money to get it because he would have already had it. And they said his heart was not right before God. He's in danger of going to hell because of his wickedness, his bitterness, and the bond of iniquity. Simon was not a follower of Jesus. And so he has one final plea to the apostles, to pray to God that that punishment, the consequence, 
would be withheld from him. And then we don't really know what happens with Simon after that. There's historians that write about him and there's you know, more theories about what might have happened, but we do see the apostles now going back to Jerusalem and on the way preaching in the, the cities and towns of Samaria on their way. So we take that, power of the name of Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit, crazy awesome stuff happening, beginning of the church scattered that we're now a part of, and we gotta figure out what we're gonna do with this. As with all of scripture, I hope as when, when you read scripture, you do this, and you don't just read it, read it today, that's great, but you read it and go, man, what can I take from this, and, and what can I learn, and how can I be affected to maybe change in my life? We gotta start by taking a step back and understanding who Simon is a picture of. Simon is a picture of humanity, really, because what is Simon about? He's all about self-serving. He, he cares more about what he can gain than anything else. In 8-9, he claimed to be someone great. He wanted others to take notice of his skills. He wanted the affirmation. He wanted them, you know, when they claimed that he was the power of God, he didn't stop them from doing that. That was okay with him to be claimed that he was. He liked that. He wanted that attention. He loved the profit, probably, that he was gaining from that. He loved others taking notice of him but it was all selfish ambition and gain. That's what he lived for. And then he was willing to pay to become even greater. It says, he says, give me this power so that I can do this. But Philippians 2, 3 tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Nothing, not a single thing for selfish ambition or conceit. Not like, hey, try not to, but hey, don't ever do anything for self, selfish gain. But that's the picture of humanity. I mean, that's the, that's the world that we live in. That's the culture that we live in here in America. We're, we're concerned with what we can gain. We want to impress people with our stuff, and we take out multiple mortgages so that we can have a certain status. We can, you know, go into all this debt so that we can keep up with society. We want people to think something about us. Social media, what image can I portray? How can I have people think something great about me or that I did this and I'm so awesome or I bought this car or I, whatever it is. And we want people to notice us and we want people to applaud us and we want to be, have a high standing in society. And this is America and that's what you're pushed to and that's what you're, you're told to do. And so this is the world that we live in. It's Simon. And don't get me wrong, I mean, having stuff is, is not necessarily bad, but I'm going to tell you this right now, our stuff doesn't go to heaven with us, but people do. We're here on this earth to glorify God first and foremost, to spread his gospel, and then to love others like Jesus. And if we want to be a church like God intends us to be, then we've got to get out of his way, the selfish ambitions of our lives personally, we've got to get out of his way We've got to start living like he's called us to live, which is selflessly for him. We're talking about church the last few months and the next couple as we talk about Acts. We've got to think about it from that perspective. We also don't want to miss something that carries great significance for us, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. The power that Simon wanted was found in the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to tell you this. There's no, there's no promise in Scripture that tells us that when we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit that we'll speak in tongues. 
and we'll perform miracles. We'll be able to exercise demons. But there is a promise in Acts that when the Spirit comes upon us, we will receive power. And it looks different for everybody, but in this power, we will be able to do what God has called us to do, and that's to evangelize the whole world. And that promise is made to everybody that the Holy Spirit comes on. Not just a few, and I'm not going to sit up here and tell you, you know, talk about the spirit gifts and all of that stuff and get kind of tricky. But I will say this, if you are in this room and you tell me that the spirit doesn't work in those ways anymore, we've got to be really careful because we're, we're limiting God, we're putting him in kind of a scary box when we do that. I'll tell you a couple stories. Caleb Cross went to Kenya a few years back. One of the stories he told me when he got back, actually told me when he was there because he was so blown away, got invited to go to someone's house because that person wanted to accept Christ. All right, let's go. Let's go pray for this person and lead them to Christ. Didn't look like that, did it? No. Person was convulsing and they were exercising a demon out of this person so that when that demon left his body, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, could invade. That's what Caleb saw with his own eyes. Am I going to sit up here and go, nah, Holy Spirit doesn't work like that? Not anymore. My dad told me this story years ago, and I asked him to remind me of it. And I'm going to read what he texted me. He said, I had torn cartilage in my right knee as diagnosed by an orthopedist. I was scheduled for surgery, and a few days before the surgery, I was listening to a cassette tape, haha, with a song about God being a healer. I realized that while I was faithful in praying for others, I rarely prayed for myself. So driving my beat up forward in the Netherlands, I put my hand on my knee and prayed for God's healing. At my next appointment prior to the surgery, I told the doctor I believe I was healed. He wasn't necessarily skeptical, but he asked to examine my knee, which he did, but just probing with his hand. I grimaced and he said we need to do the surgery. Needless to say, my faith was a bit shaken. So I had the surgery and the doctor visits me afterward and I asked him how everything went and he said, fine, no problem. I was a bit groggy at that point and the next day he came in and I asked him again, how did things go? I had forgotten that I asked him the previous day because I was so drugged up the first time. He said, I told you yesterday there was no problem. I said, what do you mean, no problem with the surgery? And he said, no, there's no problem with your knee. So then he calls me yesterday morning, emotional. He's like, by the way, I'm still crying from repeating that story to you. He says, yesterday, Friday, I couldn't get out of bed. My dad's got some pretty big back issues. He said, I couldn't get out of bed. Hanging out with some friends, he said, I'm sitting on their couch. And he said, Adam, physically, literally, I had to use both of my hands to lift my leg, to move it, to be able to get comfortable. I had to have help getting up off the couch. I couldn't even walk to the car. I was in so much pain. So he told me yesterday, he said, I woke up and I was so convicted. He said, where is my faith of 25 years ago? So he prayed in that moment that God would heal his back, he said, I stood up and started doing jumping jacks with no pain. You tell me that the Holy Spirit doesn't work like that anymore. Whew. Man. And maybe you have stories like that. Maybe you do. But oftentimes we don't believe that he can do those things because we don't see it. We don't give the Holy Spirit enough credit for what he is actually capable of. In Matthew 17, it says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
Do we believe that to be true, though? I mean, I'm not talking metaphorical struggle in my life that's a mountain that I need to climb over and, and overcome. I'm talking a physical mountain. Like, if you were standing out there looking at a mountain and you said, God, I, be- I really believe you could move that mountain. Do you believe that he could move that mountain? Really? And that's what it says. God, God can do anything he wants to do. We don't have that kind of faith to move a mountain that's out of our human scope of possibility, but it's not out of God's. Imagine how this power and the belief in the depth of it could affect and revolutionize your life. Imagine to believe that the Spirit can actually use you to change the world. Imagine how many people you could affect for the gospel. Philip wasn't an apostle, wasn't one of the main leaders of the church, if you will. He was a deacon chosen to serve the widows. But God used his spirit in Philip to show his power to lead people from death to life. And this isn't just a a command for everyone, right? Jesus says, go and make disciples. That's not for the outgoing or well-spoken people. That's everyone who calls Jesus Savior and who follows him. So here's a really challenging probing question. How many disciples have you made in the last year? We are a part of the scattered church that we see taking form here. We're meant to do what these apostles and deacons and then people in the church were doing by affecting lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're still meant to do that. We're part of the scattered church, but we do that through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Another question we have to ask ourselves is, are we getting in the way of that, personally? Is it fear, is it pride, insecurity, selfish ambitions as we see with Simon? I mean, imagine for our church, if we really, really, truly relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine what that could do, how many people we could affect and reach not talking about how many people we could get to come to our church and fill these seats. I'm talking about people that are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we would get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit use us. That's what I've been challenged with this week. Big time. Imagine what God could do. But our faith often is too small. We don't think we can do that. We don't think God can use us in that way. I think we have a proper appreciation and belief in the Spirit. That's what I, that's what I have come to the conclusion of. Are we so concerned about ourselves and what we can gain out of this life that we miss out on what God can use us to do and what really matters? So here's my challenge and then we'll pray. We need to get out of the way. We gotta get out of the way. We gotta let the Holy Spirit work through us with the name of Jesus changing the world for the glory of God. That's what we're called to do. So let's just get out of the way and watch what God can do. We'll be blown away, I'm telling you. We're blown away. We'll have so many stories of how the Holy Spirit has worked, and we'll have that response of, of people saying, man, the Holy Spirit did this, and it was like, I didn't think he was supposed to do that anymore. I want those stories, and I hope you do too. I want our church to be spirit-led, and I want us to be spirit-led, and we can be. We gotta believe it. So let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for scripture and stories and Um, how we can take from the example of those who lived thousands of years ago and how we can take it and apply it to our lives. And God, we're, we're called to live the same way. 
It's not that it was meant for those people then only. Your spirit, the power of your spirit lives in each of us today. And so I, I pray, God, that we would walk out of here with a renewed sense of maybe, I don't know, like motivation, I guess, to, to explore the spirit and to really get out of the way and let him work through our lives and see what he can accomplish as a result. God, I want every person in this room who knows you to, to have an experience, a supernatural experience every single day, not just when they become a believer, but just constantly asking God, God, fill me with your spirit, use your spirit. I, I wanna be led by your spirit. I want your spirit to use me to do crazy things for your glory, not for me, but for you. Nothing that I can gain out of this, God, but all for your glory and for your gain. That's how I wanna live. God, I pray that the people, as, as we walk out of this room, that we would have that mindset and we would be led by your spirit to change the world. We can do that, God, by the power of your spirit. So thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your present Holy Spirit that is here and now with us. Praise in your son's name. Amen.